This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is KUAF. Ahead this hour, we spend some time looking forward to 2023 with Sona and with Best Friends Animal Society. First, the social media app TikTok has become the target of numerous governors and state legislatures. Eleven states have already banned the use of the platform on government-issued devices, and a ban on the federal level has been added to the omnibus spending bill. These leaders and lawmakers claim that the Chinese government can and will use the app to spy on Americans. Arkansas State Senator Gary Stubblefield of Branch has prefiled a bill for the 2023 legislative session to add the natural state to that list. But let's take a step back for a moment and better understand what exactly the app is and how it differs from other social media app experiences. Matthew gives us the details. Remember years ago when you first got your Facebook account? The first thing Facebook wanted you to do is connect to friends. Your time on the app is dependent on connecting to people you may know. The same is true for Twitter and Instagram. But maybe instead of friends and family, you're connecting to news outlets, brands, and influencers. But none of these social media platforms are very useful without you making connections. The same is not true for TikTok according to Michael Spikes. What TikTok does a little bit differently is TikTok does not always, at least to my knowledge, it doesn't do that initial prompting of telling you find people to follow. They might bring up, if you have contacts in your phone or on your device that you're using TikTok on, it might ask to have access to those contacts so then it could use that information to then feed you content. But initially, I think the main sort of data source that a site like TikTok uses is what you watch, how long you watch, and how you interact with that content. Spikes is a lecturer and expert in media literacy at Northwestern University. He says as soon as you download the app and create an account, TikTok just starts going. And then its algorithms play a role in saying, okay, this person likes this, they tend to watch this, they tend to like this, which we use a term of engagement to sort of push that, it uses that information to then feed the person or feed the user more content that it thinks that user will engage with. Arkansas State Senator Gary Stubblefield says TikTok is a surveillance tool for the Chinese government and a dangerous app. It has a lot of things on it that can be harmful, such as facial recognition, tracking devices, location devices. Uh, where your friends are, who your friends are. Are you concerned that uh, that there are other applications that also, you know, collect your data, have your information about your location, you know, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. There are plenty of other applications that collect this sort of data for Americans as well. Um, are you concerned about that sort of data collection as well? I am concerned about it, but the, the fact of the matter is, that TikTok, who's owned by ByteDance, is a Chinese company, and under Chinese security laws, they have to release that data to the Chinese government. Here they do not. As the senator points out, ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, is based in Beijing, China. Here's Samir Patil, an associate professor in the School of Computing at the University of Utah. And the difference there is say companies like Facebook or Instagram, Instagram is owned by, uh, and both of them are owned by, by Meta. These are all American companies, so their headquarters are here in the U.S., which means that they fall under the jurisdiction of the U.S. government. Patil says that an American company like Meta almost certainly stores their data in the United States, which means that if needed, the government can compel them to release said data. TikTok has a United States headquarter, and they claim that data collected from American users is stored locally. But the fact remains that the actual parent company is a Chinese company. And so that means that the parent, is A, it's outside the jurisdiction of U.S. entities, but B, it is under the jurisdiction of a different entity, uh, which can compel and regulate that entity in the same way the U.S. government can regulate companies based in the U.S. TikTok seems to be the app in the hot seat at the moment, and perhaps rightfully so. 
there is not a lot of clarity around where your data eventually lives. Patil says he had a group of students comb through TikTok's terms of service to better understand what happens when you agree to it. And more or less, just like any other privacy policies, it says that, you know, there are more, they're going to collect all kinds of data about you and use that for various purposes, such as personalizing the content you see, serving you with ads. They might even sell this information to other parties who want to know about you. And the reality is, this is what all of these free social media apps are doing. If the product is free, you are the product, right? But as we've consistently been pointing out, the issue here is that TikTok is from a foreign entity. And especially a foreign entity with which, you know, the United States or the state governments do not necessarily have uh, the most trusted of relationships. Patil says it may be more useful to write laws and policy that isn't constrained to one specific app or platform and is instead based on parameters. Perhaps a, a more general way that can achieve the same purposes without necessarily mentioning only TikTok, instead of naming one specific app or service, uh, general parameters, uh, such as uh, saying that, you know, the app must be approved or vetted for use, or it should be uh, such that it is, uh, you know, the, under the jurisdiction of the Arkansas state government, what have you, right? And that one app, might actually also fall, fall under those parameters, so it will achieve that purpose anyway. But just focusing on one app might actually lead people to miss similar threats from other entities that might, ne- might not necessarily be popular today. I provided Dr. Patil's suggestion to Senator Subafield to provide a bill with parameters instead of zeroing in on a specific app. He says he would be open to tweaking the bill. I don't understand why we would want to allow a communist country who has a terrible human rights record to allow them to come in and have all this kind of personal data uh, about our not only our government, like I said before, but our children and our families. And uh, I think it's very dangerous, but I would certainly be open to adding more apps to this, this list. Yes. Uh, at the end of this, uh, at the end of this bill here, we're thinking about what happens if someone does use the application on their government-issued device. At the end of the bill here, it says, upon conviction, a person that downloads or uses the TikTok application or visit the TikTok website is guilty of a violation, and that's kind of the end of of that. What happens? What do you propose should happen to a state employee if they were to download and use TikTok? Well, we didn't put, listen, we did not put a penalty on there, and I'm seriously considering uh, changing the wording in that bill to where our IT department can block that app and not allow a employee of the state to even download it. So that would be solved at the state level where there, we wouldn't have to worry about someone downloading it or having to penalize somebody. The Arkansas State Legislature's general session begins on January 9th. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. We're nearing, or maybe already at, the point of 2022 when we are thinking about what 2023 might bring. Well, we know one thing. In spring, the Best Friends Animal Society presence in Bentonville will host a grand opening for its pet resource center. Best Friends Animal Society is a national organization founded in 1984. Jackie Roach, the executive director of the Bentonville Best Friends, says the organization first arrived in northwest Arkansas in 2017. To do a study on the state of animal welfare in the area and to see if the area would support um, um, having a regional presence in, in this area. The answer was yes, and in the five years since... Diligently working on building the Pet Resource Center, um, we opened up a um, temporary life-saving center where we've been doing some life-saving work, working with shelters across the state of Arkansas. Um, We have actually made quite a bit of headway in the number of animals in the state of Arkansas um, who are being killed needlessly in shelters. It's been reduced from nearly 13,000 to on, on the short side of 7,000. So we've made a tremendous amount of work. About 48% of the animal shelters in the state are no kill. 
which means that they're saving 90% or better of the animals that are in their care. Best Friends nationally concentrates on dogs and cats and ending the killing of dogs and cats in shelters. And that mission is very much at the heart of the Bentonville operation. In October, Dr. Mandy Shearhart started working as the Best Friends veterinarian. She says she became passionate about shelter vet work during her time at the Humane Society of Southwest Missouri and then completed vet school with a desire to have a career in shelter medicine. Always had a passion for helping homeless animals. And, um, you know, this was honestly the, the coolest opportunity I could have asked for because it's not even just a, a shelter medicine job. It's it's a one-of-a-kind position where, you know, it's shelter medicine, but it's also community engagement. It's helping the clients, helping the pets, helping the community, uh, which are all things that I've, I've always wanted to do. As Northwest Arkansas continues to grow with people, the pet population grows as well. And Arkansas has among the highest per capita pet-to-people populations in the country. According to the American Veterinary Medical Association, 69% of Arkansas homes own at least one dog or one cat. That's the sixth highest such rate in the nation. That's one reason Jackie Roach, the Best Friends Bentonville Executive Director, is eager to open the new Pet Resource Center in spring 2023. It's a 20,000-square-foot facility. Um, that will be unlike anything anybody's ever seen. It's, it's unlike any facility that's ever been built, totally focusing on um, community-supported sheltering and building that from the ground up. And when we think about, or when I say community-supported sheltering, a lot of people will interpret that as the um, us, the organization helping members of the community. I think of it more holistic and think of it as, yes, helping members of the community that need help and their pets, but we're also inviting the community to come in and take part in life-saving opportunities and giving the community an opportunity to be part of the solution. The new pet center will include a 4,500-square-foot clinic with five surgery tables that could, over the course of a year, handle up to 15,000 cats and dogs for spay, neuter, or other medical services. Jackie Roach says there will also be room for volunteers. She says animal shelters often rely on volunteers, but don't always have enough room to take advantage. But you're kind of lucky if you have a place to put your purse or your keys or your coat. Um, and we created a space for the volunteers where they will be front and center. And so um, we'll have a maker space um, available for them where if somebody just wants to walk in off the street and just kind of, I don't know, I'd like to do something, we'll have a whole, whole kit of um, ideas and projects and things that they can work on. We want to invite the community in um, to do special projects, maybe for other shelters. Um, um, it might be making a lot of outdoor cat shelters for outdoor cats for one of the rescue groups, and, and we can bring all the products in and invite the community in to help make, you know, 100 outdoor cat shelters. Dr. Mandy Shearhart says Best Friends also relies on volunteers to help in another way fostering pets. Not only if they've never had a pet and they want to know what it's like, but, you know, there's there's always room and people don't realize how much I think that we rely on fosters to help us move animals through um, because, you know, that's that's really the more foster homes we have, the more animals we can help. Um, and that goes for us and all of our, our coalition partners, you know, that they're always looking for, for fosters because space is often a, a limiting factor and it's so rewarding. Like I said, it, it's hard sometimes you get attached and, you know, and it's it's hard sometimes because you get really messy puppies, but <laughs> it's always worth it. It is always worth it. Best Friends will open its Pet Resource Center in Bentonville in spring 2023. You can find out more about their current operations and future plans at bestfriends.org NWA. The KUAF Giving Tree has been lit. This annual program from your public radio station benefits an area nonprofit that's looking for help from our community. This month of December, we're partnering with Seven Hills Homeless Center, which works to develop and implement collaborative local solutions that foster hope, opportunity, and stability for people experiencing homelessness. Seven Hills provides a wide range of basic needs and housing services and works with other groups to help decrease homelessness in our community. Right now, Seven Hills' biggest needs are canned soups, coats, socks, gloves, and winter hats. You can drop off your donation of new or gently used items at KUAF, 9 South School Avenue in Fayetteville. You can find more information about Seven Hills at sevenhillscenter.org. The Giving Tree and KUAF Public Radio, 
Make your voice matter. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Paul Haas, who is with the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, Orsona. Welcome back. Thank you, Carl. Great to be here with you. So it seems as though the Christmas concert and the snowman gets over, and it's not quite literally the next week, but it's close to when you're back on stage. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting. We dive right back into it uh, for our first concert of 2023. It's... uh, it's an incredible concert. I'm not going to lie to you. It's one I've been looking forward to for months and months and actually been thinking about for years and years. It's, it's a program that's very special to me. It has three wonderful composers, the works of three wonderful composers. Absolutely. Uh, William Grant Still, of course, uh, well, you might call him the, the dean of American composers almost at this point. A uh, fabulous composer just now kind of getting his due recognition just uh, phenomenal work. Doing his a uh, work he wrote in 1943, uh, and then we're Leonard Bernstein, of course. Uh, the the Chichester Psalms uh, from a very bright period in his life, uh, mi- mid 60s, sort of around the time uh, that Lincoln Center was 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 taking shape, uh, and then a- ending up with Goretzky's Third Symphony, which is. Well, let's just say that it's sold over a million copies of, of this one album uh, with Zinman uh, uh, back in, in the 1990s. It's, it's just sort of this freak occurrence in classical music where there's this just chart-topping uh, album, just, just, just out of the blue. What, what I love about these three individual composers that you will be performing works of in this concert is that you have William Grant Still, whose uh, recognition, deserved recognition, came late, very late. Yeah. You have Leonard Bernstein, who was... Born famous. Right, and, <laughs> and only became more famous every day he was alive. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you have Gretzky, whose Symphony Number no. 3 became incredibly famous. But nothing else that he ever wrote, pretty much. Right. I mean, it's, 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 con- it's a conundrum. Uh, but in in all three cases, there are very good reasons for for why that happened. Um, you know, of course, in in Still's case, uh, you know, uh, latent racism just prevented it from happening, uh, and it's it's a shame that it's happening as late as it is. But kind of everybody now knows right. who he is, who he was, uh, and and he's being celebrated justly. Uh, and Goretzky, let's just say that he did write some prickly music besides this. Uh, and, you know, there's, there, there's certainly, uh, he's famous among classical music circles, but, you know, that's a, that's a, a small percentage of the population. Whereas if you're talking to over a million people buying this album, I mean, that's a, that he, he touched a nerve there. I always thought of, this is really ignorant, but I always thought of him as sort of a J.D. Salinger figure. Not that he was reclusive, but there was that one work that everybody knew. Even if they hadn't read it, they knew it. And Symphony Number no. 3 has always seemed like that to me with him. Yeah, you know, I've listened to a lot of his work trying to find the, the other Goretzky third, mm-hmm. and I, I haven't found it. You know, there, there, there are, there are Portions of other works that have that same sort of um, presence. Uh, one of them is called uh, "Requiem for a Polka," <laughs> which, seriously. yeah, seriously. <laughs> and and the last two movements of that are just breathtakingly gorgeous. But but the first part is just wacky, uh, angular, just kind of like chasing people out the exits kind of music, uh, and. Yeah, I mean he's he's a conundrum for me for sure Cause, because this piece is is just um, it's perfect in yeah. so many ways. William Grant Still's Mother and Child is <clears throat> darn near perfect. Divine. Yeah, divine, perfect one. Yeah. yeah.
And while the Bernstein is sort of a touch removed from the the theme of the concert, mother and child, it still has a sort of parental child uh, between between God and and uh, and humankind. Uh, there, you know, there is this. Um, there's a thing about about parent and child, and especially mother and child, that I think everyone can relate to. It's just it's part of being human, and you know, in addition to that, there's this sense of in the Goretzky at least this sense of loss, mm-hmm. right? Where it's talking about Mother Mary losing Jesus. It's talking about a little girl essentially who's being imprisoned in the basement of the Gestapo headquarters in Krakow and then it's talking about a mother who lost her son in the Silesian uprisings in the 1920s which none of us know about right it's um, there's this sense of the beauty of that relationship seen through the loss of that relationship I mean, to me, it's it's uh, it's breathtakingly powerful. This this idea that here we are, we're living this thing called life, and what's special about it is the stuff we're going to lose. It's both mother and child in Symphony Number no. Three to me, and I guess I you project, but that's what you do when you listen to music, right? Mm-hmm, you of project, course. but they're both so emotional and so beautiful. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with the the Bernstein. It's a piece I've done, I think, twice before, and it's essentially celebration, introspection, celebration, kind of a celebration, well, I guess now an introspection sandwich, (laughs) (laughs) but it's just, you know, it's out there. It's, uh, it's, It's all Lenny. It's brash. It's... Confident. It's very confident, yes. I mean, it's heart on the sleeve. Uh, it's gorgeous. It's it's angular, but in a upbeat, um, you know, spirited way. It's in some ways, it's uh, patriotic. It's right. it's you know, it's 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 a little Beethoven ninety. You know, it's 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 got it's got all the the Bernstein strokes in it. Everything we love about him. It's the main stage concert, two of the 22-23 season. It's January 7th at Walton Arts Center. You'll be back ahead of the March 11th, but that looks like an exciting performance, too. Oh, absolutely. I can't wait for that, too. I mean, I, I kind of have to pinch myself sometimes. Ah. I'm, I'm so lucky that I get to, to work with this orchestra, these incredible musicians, you know, program these, these monumental works and just essentially be in that room and celebrate that enjoy that with you know over a thousand people like pinch me really uh and i i have to i I have to end up just just by saying if you're gonna see a concert this season this is it i mean you're you're just you're never gonna hear goretzky third symphony live ever and this is the first and and possibly the only time i'll ever do it (laughs) you know it's it's a it's a it's a big orchestra. It's a special kind of piece. It's just not the kind of thing you reach for every day and put out there on stage. And it's monumental. It's it's one of those. So it 
people break down in tears during this piece. People have life-changing moments during this piece. It's not sort of your, you know, we're not going to go in and there and and smile and, and, and clap and leave. This is potentially a transformational evening. Sonamusic.org for more information. Paul Haas, thank you so much. Thank you. KUAF is supported by David Adams Fine Jewelers, wishing everyone happy holidays and encouraging local shopping, offering handmade jewelry in platinum, gold, and silver, diamonds, and precious gemstones on the corner of Block and Center on the Fayetteville downtown square or at davidadams.com. This month, the Arkansas Women's Commission gave their final recommendations to Governor Asa Hutchinson about the state of women in Arkansas. The most recent report of this kind was completed nearly 50 years ago. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth spoke with Annabeth Gorman about the significance of the commission and what actions the state needs to take now. The last time Arkansas convened a women's commission was almost 50 years ago in 1973. But earlier this year, Governor Asa Hutchinson charged the state's fourth women's commission with compiling a comprehensive report on barriers facing women in the Arkansas workforce, with special emphasis on single mothers, entrepreneurs, and the child care economy. And with financial support from the Women's Foundation of Arkansas, the commission held monthly regional meetings, conducted online questionnaires, and surveyed more than 400 women across the state since February and filed their report to the governor earlier this month. Annabeth Gorman is the chief executive officer with the Women's Foundation and says the report was long overdue. And so we approached the governor's office really with like, this is a this is a great opportunity for Arkansas to demonstrate that it sees women as valuable players in the Arkansas economy. Um, this is an opportunity for a termed out governor to really make a statement about, you know, supporting supporting half of its population. And we were so incredibly pleased that he found value in reinstating the commission and named his chief of staff as the chair of the commission and gave them one year to really do some intentional work around the charges from that executive order. Um, And so we were really excited to support behind the scenes the work of the Women's Commission, offering some financial support in and and just really kind of be an an additional resource as the commission needed. So digging into some of those findings, you know, one of the the major ones was um, because of when this report was produced during the pandemic, uh, was the impact of COVID-19 on women in the economy and the workforce. Can you dig into that a little bit and what was found? Right. So the average salary of a full-time early childhood care provider, I mean, it is significantly less than, say, a kindergarten teacher in Arkansas. Okay, so, you know, the demand for high quality and infant toddler care, like, we've got to have real conversations about how to incentivize this specific industry. You know, right now, you know, the state house, they're having huge conversations about teacher salary in Arkansas, how we're losing people to other states because of our, our wages are low. But we're talking about the most vulnerable children, you know, zero to four, and the individuals that we are entrusting to their care full time are making significantly less than public school teachers. So what is the incentive in this industry to really have a high quality workforce? And that's something that I think that we absolutely have to to talk about in Arkansas as high quality child care. Yeah. And so in compiling this report and and kind of looking back at the the report from, you know, 1973 and then sort of the other um, reports that you guys did in 2013, uh, 2018, were there any sort of key findings that things that you saw really progressed in those and maybe some things that that regressed? And and what were those? There are lots of recommendations in the report and the different categories, but something that the governor touched on that we also kind of saw from the update from our 2018 data to this data was actually a change in earnings, right? So there was a less than a half a percent change in earnings from like comparing women to men's earnings. And that was funny, Governor Hutchinson mentioned, like, that surprised him that it, it changed so little. I mean, that is not the change that you want to see if you want to see women 
being able to have economic mobility in our economy. And I, you know, as an advocate for women, I try to talk about the fact that, you know, a woman's circumstance is the child's circumstance, right? So if women in Arkansas aren't reaching their full earning potential because of a variety of factors and, and, and barriers and unconscious bias and different things that, that, that still continue to this day, she's passing on that circumstance to her child, to the future of Arkansas. So we have got to be really intentional at addressing this. And I just appreciated very much Governor Hutchison, like looking at it, like, wow, that jumped off the page for him, that why has this not changed? Like you, you just would think, you know, we, we continue to see progress. Like, well, actually, we're, we're not seeing progress. Yeah. And another area where, you know, maybe I think looking at it from the outside, you wouldn't see these things as being connected, but they are, is economics and healthcare in Arkansas. And so when this report was being compiled, you know, Roe versus Wade was overturned. Abortion was restricted completely in Arkansas. Did that change, I don't know, women's feelings in the state about their access to health care and their place in the workforce? The commission was very careful to not let national conversations impede their work and or what Governor Hutchinson specifically asked them to look at. I think that when you talk about women and, and health care, you have to understand like what is the quality of health care that they can access. You look at our rural counties where we have, still have populations of women without health insurance or so there's something we we don't universally have have people that can access health insurance and you know something that they actually talked about that I think is an easier conversation to have in Arkansas is maternal mortality rates and maternal health rates here in Arkansas and so that is something that we absolutely can be looking at like actually when women are pregnant like the quality of care that they receive because we are a country that is seeing higher rates of mortality for childbearing than other countries across the world. So we have got to talk about women's access to health care. It should be concerning that in our rural counties where you're seeing, it's not even access. There's just, there's nothing there. Like health care is disappearing in our, in our smaller rural communities. And again, we've come a long way with telemedicine, but at a certain point, for women of childbearing years, they need to see a, a doctor or a, or a nurse to ensure that things are going okay. Yeah. And can you maybe connect the dots as to how that, how healthcare and access to it, quality healthcare or in general, um, is related to the economy and to women's place in, in the Arkansas economy? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, healthcare is impact the economy. If, if we have women skipping preventative health services, not getting a medical appointment, they're going to get sicker and they're going to not show up for work, right? They're going to, I mean, it is literally a direct correlation. If you have an employee or a worker that is sick and is not getting the access to healthcare, it is going to absolutely impact their productivity on the job. And then, you know, going into the study, are there places that we see Arkansas making some progress when it comes to the workforce? I think this report and this commission is progress because, again, there are other states that have had women's commissions, but this is a state that was asked for recommendations and actually identified people that could take action on these recommendations. And I think that that is real, real progress. If you look at the makeup of this, the commissioners themselves and and the representation from across our state, I think Arkansas deserves a lot of credit for being intentional. Yeah. And looking at those recommendations that were put forward, you know, what are some, in your opinion, like action items that could happen either for the legislature or for maybe employers um, that they could do to address these issues? Right. So one of the recommendations for one bucket was to increase equity in the labor force and entrepreneurship. In our organization, we've been doing um, initiatives and programs for women of color entrepreneurs, but now we're very interested in the larger ecosystem that exists to support business owners across Arkansas and ensuring that it's a thriving ecosystem. For years, we've worked collaboratively with Arkansas Department of Education on computer science, but it's not just computer science that we need to see equity in. We need to see equity across all the STEM education fields. 
And so I think that that's something that I know we are going to take as a recommendation very seriously as we look at our future work. And then as I'm jumping over to another area, you know, talking about the meaningfully engaging the business community to address childcare challenges. How can we provide technical assistance and capacity building for expanding existing child care businesses. This is something I hope that the legislature does take up. It's really what, how can we support that early child care economy? And so I think that that's something that legislators can look at. And and in my, again, my, my humble opinion, this shouldn't be a partisan issue. This should be like, this is just good business for Arkansas. If we've got good quality early childhood education and care, we're going to have more of our adult workforce comfortable and happy going to work because they know that their kids are being taken care of. What is the next steps for the for the Women's Commission and for um, this data going forward? You know, how do you hope it is used moving forward? So the Women's Commission, I mean, they have completed their charge. They have turned over this report to the governor. Uh, and now it's going to be up to organizations like the Women's Foundation of Arkansas to ensure that these recommendations get elevated. One of our immediate next steps plans are to take this report across the state. We're going to lean back into where we have commissioners represented and, and go back to those communities. But really, we are going to bring in public, private, other partners. So this isn't going to be, you know, just a commission only meeting. This is really going to be, here is the report, here are the recommendations, here are industry here in this community that this could impact this work. And so we are excited to take that on the road next year and really leverage that. We also want to ensure that it gets in front of our, our, our legislative body. And we really think it's important that this work is elevated to the, the incoming administration and the different to the different state agencies as, as they most likely will have new leadership that they're aware that this report is out there, that there's good information that they could look into and they could, this could be low hanging fruit for them if they're looking for, you know, projects and or recommendations and, and how to, to create new plans of work. This can be a guide. Is there any, maybe one takeaway from this report that you hope people get out of it that you hope people say, this is kind of the main thing that, that you need to know, a snapshot from right now. The success of women in our state is the determining factor in how we are viewed nationally. You know, Arkansas is, is you know, there was a national ranking the last couple of years that we were like the worst state for women to live in. And I'm a woman in Arkansas, and I actually don't, I don't feel that way day to day, but I'm sitting in a different position. And so I feel like this report was so critical to give a voice to women that we don't see, we don't hear from, but are absolutely the future narrative of our state. Do you feel that that's changing at all? It's so interesting because, you know, we have uh, our first female governor, we have um, a lieutenant governor who's female. Do you feel that it's changing at all in this state? Again, I I have I have hope. I I continue to have a lot of hope because yeah, we have this you know you know we elected the first uh, U.S. female U.S. senator from Arkansas. We've got this history of of electing women to higher office, and we've got the first female governor, first uh, female lieutenant governor in a, in a southern rural state. This is a this is an exciting time in history, and I absolutely hope that a part of that legacy will be lifting up all women. That was Annabeth Gorman with the Women's Foundation of Arkansas speaking with reporter Daniel Carruth. You can view the entire commission report online at womensfoundationarkansas.org. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for information. This is Ozarks at Large. Have you ever wondered what Vivaldi's pieces would sound like if they were recreated in the streets of Rio de Janeiro? Or if the percussionists took influence from Havana-inspired drumlines? Sponsored by the Reflections team, the latest episode of the Reflections podcast put together a panel of speakers to perform and discuss artist advocacy and creative justice. In this excerpt from the latest episode, Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith asked why representation matters in classical music and how Pepe Rivero, composer of the Four Seasons of Latin Jazz, aided in that effort. 
For this sixth episode, the team has gathered a panel of musicians and creative adjacent speakers to analyze the social impact of the arts, as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Now, the piece, The Four Seasons of Latin Jazz, written by internationally acclaimed Cuban composer and pianist Pepe Rivero, is a recontextualization of Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, influenced by the flavors, cultures, and rhythms of New York, Havana, Rio de Janeiro, and Buenos Aires. Here's a short clip from the event. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I'm really excited to be able to introduce our lineup of speakers and our team. Helping me moderate at the Furman Garner Performance Studio in Fayetteville is Rogelio Garcia Contreras. Rogelio is the Director of Social Innovation at the Walton College of Business. As far as our speakers today, we have Stephen Bias, Music Director of the Arkansas Philharmonic Orchestra. Margot Lamaster. Margot is an executive director of Engage NWA. And we have Dr. Leah Uribe. She's the associate chair at the Department of Music for the University of Arkansas. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. This is very exciting. Just to start off, Leah, what is the main theme, main objective of this podcast and where the heart of the conversation kind of lies now? In the life of Reflections music series, we have come to understand the power that music has to challenge spaces. Uh, that is not just the, uh, the, the one we think about entertainment and emotional exchange and what happens as mus- as an, in a music event, but it's a conversation before the event and after the event and about the event. All of our Reflection Music Series conversations are around creative justice. I like to think that we use excellent musicians and musicianship so we can talk about it. That's our excuse to have the heart and the beautiful and the deep conversations. So these panels are about the social impact of the arts. And uh, in connection with Rogelio Garcia Contrera, which is a co-founder of Reflections, great friend, mentor, like a brother to me. Uh, <laughs> Um, He is in charge because that's his area of uh, expertise, entrepreneurship and um, social impact. So uh, we have led this conversation sometimes with the help of uh, some of our guest musicians, many times with leaders in the community and um, with other um, arts organizations with the intention of all of us joining hands and really uh, questioning deeply what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. Rogelio, would you? Yeah, I I think there's, uh, in all forms of art, there's certain aesthetics to it. Uh, But the beauty, to quote uh, painter uh, Tyrus Kafer, an African-American painter, uh, the beauty of the art should work as some sort of uh, Trojan horse. Because what, what, what Leah was saying is the art is truly impactful when, when this art makes us have difficult conversations. 
right? So maybe we are attracted to the beauty of art, maybe we're attracted to the music, the color, the style, the technique, but it is only when this beauty triggers that kind of conversation that we, that we really have uh, true art. And this, this reminds me of a, of a quote that I always bring up like from Albert Camus, there is no art where there is nothing to be overcome. Um, and I guess the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is so important uh, in the conversations nowadays for, for our region, for our country, um, for the world in general. And again, you know, in, to, to, to bring back uh, uh, Titus uh, Kafer, you know, I was, I was very moved by a TED talk that I saw, uh, you know, with him uh, when, when he was saying how uh, he, he went to art school and how he was learning to paint. And there's a long list and, you know, historically accumulated list of formulas on how to paint uh, white skin. But he couldn't figure out how to paint a self-portrait because there's no formulas or evidence on how to do dark skin. And to me, it was, that was so moving, right? Like the, the realization of that. And by him deciding that he wanted to paint then just dark skin, uh, you know, is, is a contribution to that inclusion that needed to happen at the art level so it happens at the community level. Because this lack of representation exists in every form of art, right? Every form of art. Yeah, like you, I, I think of Toni Morrison, for instance. Uh, it happens in literature, it happens in, in art, and it happens in music. And when, when Leah was telling me about this wonderful concept of the, 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 the four seasons of Latin jazz, what was that? What is that, Leah, right? And maybe, maybe she can explain a little bit more, but it's, it's all about that. It's about inclusion and representation. And Leah, I'm curious, I mean, boots on the ground from the event last night. I mean, what moments stuck with you? Is there, was there a particular moment in a piece or an audience reaction that kind of affirmed this is, this is kind of why we're doing the work we're oh doing? Oh my gosh, I'm going to get emotional here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been getting, you know, through the whole entire concert, I was getting texts and emails uh, from some of my colleagues and friends and students, and um, they were just being so profoundly connecting with this music. One of our colleagues that has participated um, in Reflections, Luis Fernando Restrepo from the University of Arkansas, was texting me saying, this is a moment in which we recognize that we are not from here, but we are from here, because we're seeing ourselves in the stage. Well, Very beautiful. <laughs> Yes, he, he says, you're, with reflections, we're opening this space that finally belongs to us. And it was what happened on the stage. It's really being able to see ourselves in a, in a space that it is ours, but it hasn't always been ours. And it's not always, like, we have to learn how to go to a concert, uh, uh, especially when you're not in music. It's a protocol that follows these traditions. You need to know when to clap. You need to know um, what to wear. You need to know where to park. Uh, you need to know the story. And part of what we did with the Tertulia also was foster conversations for that as well. So we went to community in reflexive conversations with some of uh, our colleagues to talk to audiences and to talk about Vivaldi and to talk about uh, how he wrote some poems or sonnets that go with the music and for them to be able to see the birds and the winter in the music and know about it so they didn't feel they didn't have those tools, but then say, and then we're adding these instruments and then we're doing this and this is why we're doing it. So some of the audience members last night were there to put it all together and I got another email from a colleague from the university saying that conversation with the experience, with the reaction of my own kids, she has two kids, one of them musicians saying, after this, I really want to be a musician. After this, I want to go back to those rhythms and find myself. I mean, it's, it's powerful. It's very, very powerful. And, and I think the, the work that Pepe, the composer Pepe Rivero, uh, did uh, around these, I mean, I, I, I have no idea of music. And I enjoy music, but I am well, not that, a musician. That's the point, right? That. You don't need to know anything. <laughs> Just go there yeah. and enjoy. But, 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 I, but I, I, yeah, I definitely enjoy it because, you know, you clearly, you could identify the Valdis piece, you know, you, you, you identify that it was the Four Seasons, but at the same time, 
there was a space. There was a space created for these other forms of rhythms, of, of arrangements, of ways of feeling the winter, the spring, the fall, right? And, and that, to me, is magic and, and, and a metaphor for many other aspects of life. We have discovered in this last iteration of Reflections the importance of the agency that audiences have. And in many of the conversations we had was empowering audiences because we told them, like we know, all of you are patrons of the arts. You are paying for a ticket. You are uh, downloading music from uh, you know, the, the uh, internet, whatever you get your music from. Uh, you're investing your time when you go to a concert. You have the right to ask for the things that you want to see. And if you come from a diverse community, you have the right to see yourself. So ask for it, that empowerment. That uh, And many of these conversations are going to go back to the audience members, our patrons, patrons as well. Patrons and uh, supporters and donors and uh, philanthropy, right? So empowering also our uh, diverse um communities to give to the arts, but also to ask something in retribution that has to do with that level of seeing themselves in what they're investing in. Thank you so much for listening to the Reflections podcast. We heard music from Pepe Rivero's composition, The Four Seasons of Latin Jazz. This podcast is a companion to the Reflections music series and made possible through the Women's Giving Circle, the University of Arkansas, KUAF 91.3, Arkansas Global Changemakers, and the University of Arkansas Music Department. Thank you to Margot Lamaster from Engage NWA and Stephen Bias from the Arkansas Philharmonic Orchestra for chatting with us and bringing their perspectives. A final thank you to the Reflections team for all the hard work they put in. And to Dr. Leah Uribe, Director of Reflections, and Rogelio Garcia Contreras, co-founder of the series. Be sure to subscribe to get new episodes as they come out. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith produced the latest episode of the Reflections podcast. You can hear the entire podcast at your preferred distributor and at KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Eureka Springs. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, and Leah Uribe. Matthew produced the show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. We have one more news show tomorrow. Then we'll take our winter break and then we'll return with new shows on January 9th, 2023. 2023. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. Anyway, for today, from the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thank you for being with us on this Wednesday. Thank you for listening and be well.